Welcome to the Composer Studio Podcast. On the Composer Studio, we listen to the music of living composers. We talk to them about their writing process, and we learn about the world of music that they live and work in. I'm Anna Linville. And I'm Tarek Iridella. And today our guest is composer Juan Pablo Contreras from Guadalajara, Mexico. He is a Latin Grammy-nominated composer who combines Western classical and Mexican folk music in a single soundscape. His works have been performed by major orchestras throughout Mexico, including the National Symphony Orchestra of Mexico, the Salta and Cardoba Symphonies in Argentina, the Simón Bolivar Symphony Orchestra of Venezuela, as well as the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, and many, many more. He has won awards, including the BMI William Schumann Prize, the Presser Music Award, the ASCAP Morton Gould Young Composer Award, among others. He holds degrees in composition from the California Institute of the Arts, the Manhattan School of Music, and is currently pursuing his DMA at the University of Southern California. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, nice to meet you both. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm a fan of the podcast, so it's great. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that yeah, means yeah. a lot Absolutely. coming from it someone does. like you. It really does. Thank you. We appreciate you listening. Yeah. Juan Pablo, one of the things that struck me right away when I knew that you were going to be on the show was your background. Um, a composer from Mexico. And the first thing I thought of was Carlos Chavez. You know, I, I wanted to learn more about your background, more about your history as a composer, your education, where you came up and and what kind of role does does the folk music and the classical music history of Mexico play in your career path? Oh, great question. Big question. So, yeah, I grew up in Mexico, in Guadalajara, Jalisco, which is the land of mariachi and tequila. So great, great combination. Um, grew up in a musical family. My mother is a concert pianist. So I started playing violin when I was six. Played in several youth orchestras, but classical music in Mexico still is, you know, still barely gaining popularity. So, uh, and for someone so young like me at, at six or 10 playing the violin, there wasn't, you know, much of a, a, a big following or atmosphere to do that. So about the age of 12, I switched gears and I started to play rock music. So I picked up the electric guitar, started, started playing in, in heavy metal bands, particularly, got into that scene, and then eventually joined the band that played a genre called like symphonic metal. So they wanted to kind of blend the orchestra with the metal music. And that for me, like circled back into the classical world where I was like, well, if you want to write for the orchestra, we should learn how to do that. So I just bought a bunch of Tchaikovsky scores to learn orchestration just on my own and fell in love with the orchestra. And at that time, I thought the only way you could become an orchestra composer was to write film music. Like that was the only place that I knew that, you know, orchestra music was being written. So I uh, moved to the U.S. to study, uh, to get my undergrad at CalArts in, in L.A. or near L.A., with that idea of eventually, you know, becoming a film composer. Uh, but when I arrived at CalArts, one of my teachers, my composition teachers was Daniel Catan, who was like one of the most important opera, Mexican opera composers. So it blew my mind to meet him and to know that, oh my goodness, are there like living composers writing for the concert hall? So I switched gears and I, and I started to pursue the path of being a classical composer. Eventually, um, Moved to, to New York uh, to study at the Manhattan School of Music and lived there for about a total of six years. And then recently, about five years ago, moved back uh, to L.A. to get a doctorate at USC. And I've been uh, active in the music scene here since then. Uh, so uh, about a total of 15 years living in the U.S. All of my professional education as a composer was uh, done here. And, you know, that's... The fact that I studied in the U.S., that I left my country when I was 18, that really has informed my, my compositional voice. Like I started to feel uh, that, you know, the, the Mexican identity inside of me needed to be, you know, portrayed and conveyed through my music, you know, and especially when you're studying classical music in the States or probably in any place in the world, you know, the, the canon, the classical canon is so European and we're learning like all of these 
techniques that European composers invented that I felt like something was missing and that I, I, I needed to add my, you know, my Mexican roots to celebrate uh, the amazing and vast uh, folk and traditions of, of my country. And when I started to do that, when I started to incorporate that in my music, a switch, you know, turned on something to change. And I myself as, as an audience member felt way more excited listening to my own music. And, and, and I felt like I, I was speaking to, you know, to Latin Americans, to people that, that needed to, to have a voice in classical music that was writing music for them, that, that was writing music that was, that portrayed our, our modern day, like worries and, and themes that has been kind of my my goal. My mission has been to uh, kind of discover and, and establish a new a new compositional voice that blends Mexican music with classical music. Uh, so, Tarek, you mentioned Carlos Chavez. I, he's one of my heroes because he was one of the first Mexican composers to do that. But you know, over the past I don't know twenty years or so, Mexico and Mexican composers have mostly looked at Europe for sources of inspiration. So, like the avant-garde and and that kind of complexity music mm -hmm. is what's mostly being written in mexico nowadays so um it has been kind of uh like fighting against the current of what you know what what's expected nowadays from mexican composers but uh i've been lucky to find you know so much success with the music that i'm writing that's uh truly mexican like it's not you know it's it's not shying from mexico it's really being very extroverted in its Mexicanness and and yeah, I'm excited with that aspect of my music making. So the first piece we're going to listen to today is Mariachi Tlan. Is that did I pronounce that correctly? Correct. <laughs> right, okay, right, good. Yeah. And this piece was nominated for a Latin Grammy Award in best yeah. for best arrangement. Mm -hmm. And this this piece has a lot of uh, mariachi influences in it. Um, can you Absolutely. tell us a little bit about the history of mariachi and its importance in Mexican culture, just so people can understand why you chose this music specifically as your, you know, kind of a foundation for this piece? Absolutely. So um, when the Spanish conquered Mexico, uh, one of the first things they did were, was, you know, bringing the European instruments, you know, violins, guitars, and, you know, they gave those instruments to the indigenous people in Mexico and basically banned and prohibited any kind of pre-Hispanic music being played or, or written. So they said, look, these are your new instruments. You have to, you know, play with them and make music with them. So one of the first uh, genres that came about after this, you know, this encounter during the conquest was mariachi music. And some people think that it comes from the word mariage from the French, like a marriage between like the indigenous and uh, the Mexican tradition. So this music came about, it's, um, it, it was actually born in Cocula, Jalisco, which is a small town near Guadalajara, where I was, where I was born. So my family used to visit uh, Cocula every Easter and spend time there. So I, I was able to grow up and kind of, kind of listen to uh, how this music sounds like in the streets of Mexico when you visit a mariachi plaza and you have like 10 groups playing, you know, just a few feet away from each other. So they're actually like interrupting each other, playing around with each other. So it's it's a very kind of like Charles Ives experience of what it's like to listen to music in that um, atmosphere. And that's what I was I was going for in this this piece. The title is a made-up word. It's mariachi. Tlan in Mexico means the the land of in, in the indigenous Nahuatl. So it's the land of mariachi. And I came up with the titles because I was looking for something catchy like Disneyland or something, <laughs> some mariachi land. Uh, so, so this piece kind of pays homage to Jalisco, where this genre was invented. And the goal was to, like in a 10-minute piece, uh, trying to incorporate all of the different dances that exist within mariachi music. So like all of the different uh, flavors and, and meters that mariachi music has in a single musical experience almost like a suite Bach had the suite of uh, the baroque suite of dances you know like the jig and the um the minuet and all that so it's like you've done that with mariachi that's cool exactly but all all of the themes are original mm. so it's not there are no quotations of mariachi songs so i wrote 
uh, all of the all of the tunes myself because I didn't want the conversation. Sometimes when composers use folk material, the, the conversation just goes directly there. Like, mm-hmm. whoa, where, where where is the source? Even with you know Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, we're always trying to find out where he got those melodies. So my goal was to write everything myself so that so that you know I could propose something new.
That was Mariachitlan, composed in 2016 by our guest today, Juan Pablo Contreras. Juan Pablo, so many great, exciting moments in that piece. It's so full of so much humor and fun and excitement. And it's a really great piece to listen to. It was performed by the Jalisco Philharmonic Orchestra, and Marco Parasato was the conductor. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things that jumps right out at me is the rhythms. And, and the internal memory that that piece has. And what I mean by the internal memory is that there are these tempos and rhythms that come in and then they go out and then they come back again later in the piece. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that invention, that rhythmic and tempo invention and where that comes from. It comes from a little bit from Stravinsky, that the idea of the collage of like writing a piece in a non-chronological way and like writing different fragments and then at the end, by the time you have a lot of material, then going back and pasting it all together and creative and creating a narrative. Um, as I said, one of the goals was to, in a single piece, use as many like mariachi rhythms as possible. And what I did is I chose a tempo, like you know, quarter note equals 144, which is pretty fast. And then use I used all of the tempos that are in a sense related to that one. So every every speed that every kind of dance that we listen to in a way, is connected to each other. And that also comes from the fact that I, when I was younger composing, I always uh, felt awkward when it came to like changing tempo and going you know, from one, one section and then moving to another like at a different speed. So I found that by you know, getting these connections and, and having the tempos be related to each other in, in, in a sense or another has made it easier for me to transition and create uh, basically form and a composer that does that really well is Esa Pekka Salonen. Like he's, his pieces are all also kind of related in terms of tempo like that. So he's been a good model to, to steal from in terms of like how to transition between sections in a way that feels natural, but at the same time connected. That's great. Now, the music comes from where you grew up and, you know, that's always been in your inspiration. Um, do you mm -hmm. ever get to go back and, and visit? Yes, very often. So I, um, this piece actually was a complete game changer in my life. It was actually written for a national competition that the Jalisco Philharmonic, which we just heard, uh, they they uh, opened up that competition in 2016. So I, the piece was kind of also paying homage to that orchestra, which is kind of the orchestra that I grew up listening to as a child. My mother was a concert pianist who played with them pretty often. So I grew up in that concert hall. And the piece won the competition, and, and during that week, uh, the orchestra suggested that we record an album of all of my orchestral works to, uh, that I had written until that date. And uh, it was an amazing experience. Uh, we recorded this album, um, and then once the album was finished, uh, we pitched it to a few like big, major record, record labels, and Universal Music in Mexico uh, released the album and actually signed me as as the first uh, like Mexican com classical music composer that the, the the record signs in in their history. So that was also a, a huge deal. And as you guys know, like as a composer, um, having that kind of exposure and having a piece played, especially an orchestra piece, having it play often, like this piece has been played about twenty times now with orchestras in. Argentina, Venezuela, the U.S., and Mexico. And when we released the mm. album, we did a tour in Mexico with uh, 11 concerts, so seven orchestras played the piece. So that was, yeah, a dream come true. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So, so, rare, so rare for a composer to have <laughs> Very that. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But see, that just means you connected with people. And I think, you know, sometimes composers have an attitude towards the audience, like, oh, the audience should be educated and yeah. should appreciate me. And I, I need to explain my music to them. But really, if a piece of music is really great and really connects with people, you don't have to explain anything. It just, it resonates. Yeah. And I think it is important to connect with the audience. I think if Mm -hmm. If there's something that the, the pandemic has taught us is how important the audience is. Like, I think sometimes orchestras just program their season and they think like, oh, as long as we get this Mahler symphony played and this Beethoven, like we're doing amazing. You know? Like this, this is a great season. But I think, you know, you know, these past few months have taught us that the audience is everything and we need to think about the audience, how we're serving them, how we're connecting with them. And that's, 
I mean, that's a, also part of the reason why I really love you guys' podcast because it's it's so important for composers to explain, to reach out, to speak, to connect with people, and to you know erase that barrier mm -hmm. that has been you know historically created between the stage and the audience. I think, and and, and it's something that I've I've mm -hmm. been striving to do. So every concert that my music is played in or or that I conduct. I pick up the microphone, I, I explain, this is what's going to happen, listen to this, listen for this, uh, you know, and, and people just respond to that way, way much more than, than if you just sit in the audience and expect people to get your music just because it's great. I think nowadays, you know, the mm -hmm. job of the composer, sure, write great music, but then, you know, make it mean something and, and find the tribe that connects with it. Otherwise, you know, what we do as creators is, is meaningless, really. That's a great point. Um, you know, the next piece we're going to listen to, um, El Labrinto de la Soledad, is, um, you know, it's, it's something where you're talking about connecting with the audience and their experience and their worldview. And I think that's something that you try, you're trying to do in this piece. Definitely. The, the, the experience of modern life and the push and pull between, you know, wanting to have a connection with the past, like you have... Mm -hmm wanted the connection with the mariachi music and with also the modern life. Absolutely. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what inspired El Labyrinto de la Soledad and um, before yeah, we listen to I, it. Yeah, I think a great point that you're making is that a lot of the music that I write is super Mexican, but at the same time, I think when you speak about your roots and, and things that are important to you and, and your identity, people from all over the world connect to that. I think, I mean, if I think back to some of my favorite composers, Stravinsky, Copeland, Bartok, we're all doing that. And when I listen to Stravinsky, I'm not thinking about Russian folk music. I'm thinking about my Mexican folk music and how I connect to that. So it's that the message ends up being super universal. no? And so this piece, yeah. The Labyrinth of Solitude, was actually uh, my master's thesis piece at the at the Manhattan School of Music. So Tarek and I share that <laughs> experience of having to write a piece in order to graduate with a master's degree. And I was, so the, the title and, and the idea is inspired by a book by the same title by Octavio Paz, who was a Nobel Prize winning writer. And the concept or, or the question that he poses in this, this book is, what does it mean to be Mexican? So it's a, it's a series of essays kind of explaining the history of Mexico and why, you know, Mexicans are like they, they are. Like, in a sense, they, they reject the fact that they were, you know, conquered by the Spanish. At the same time, they don't feel too identified with their indigenous uh, past. So you're kind of like in a limbo in between the two uh, like great traditions that, that still live and breathe in the country. So I wanted to answer that question with music. And this piece is kind of an attempt to answer that. Like, why, what does it mean to be Mexican in music? And at the same time, where can the, the meeting point be between European influences and Mexican influences and how to make those worlds uh, collide, crash, meet, intertwine? So all of the different kind of uh, variations of how that could happen. And this was my first like big attempt to answer that question and... Again, I, got, I was very lucky with this piece after the, the Manhattan School of Music premiere. It won the BMI William Schumann Prize. And at that point, I basically had only written, like successfully only written this orchestra piece. And But people with that, you know, earning that prize, you know, people started to say like, oh, so you're like an established orchestral composer. Not really. I have this cool piece, but, but it got played like within a year, like 10 orchestras had played it. And that kind of, yeah, took off my career into, yeah, what's become today. So, yeah. So I, I have a lot of love for this piece because it really opened up so many doors.
That was El Laberinto de la Soledad by Juan Pablo Contreras. That was from the Juan Pablo Contreras' new Universal Music Group album, Mariachitlan, performed by the Jalisco Philharmonic Orchestra with Marco Parisato conducting. Um, that album is available on Amazon, iTunes, and you can listen to it on Spotify. And you can also get it on the composer's website at www.juanpablocontreras.com. That that piece is just, there's so much going on there. Um, <laughs> it's like... Um, yeah. you had, you had some heavy metal <laughs> yeah, influences yeah. in there and, um, a lot of rhythmic changes and, uh, juxtaposition of, of tonal pa passages with really dissonant mm -hmm. ones. Can you tell us a little bit about your structure, how you structured this piece and the story that you were trying to tell? Uh, I, yeah, I definitely wanted to convey a little bit of that anxiety that one can feel like trying to discover your own identity or to try to understand your own personal background. Uh, so, so, it, so the idea was to kind of design the form of the piece uh, as if you were entering a labyrinth so that you're kind of lost. And then so sometimes you return to the same place, but it doesn't look as, you know, it's familiar, but not quite exactly the same. So you're running in this labyrinth trying to discover your own identity. That was the metaphor that I was going for. So there's definitely a lot of, unexpected twists and turns and uh, obviously it's a it's a good concert opener it's like an eight minute piece so so i wanted to inject a lot of energy into it the players are mostly you know a lot of the orchestra players are playing at the same time so there's a lot of that big sound kind of orchestra which is um always exciting for 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 audiences and yeah so that was kind of the idea behind the construction of the the structure for all of these materials that seem to not belong in the same piece, but at the same time, that was a, the the challenge. Like, how can I make Mexican music and all of these different influences coexist in a single, you know, composition? If your labyrinth of um, exploration and confusion and solitude is this joyous, <laughs> maybe <laughs> why would you want to ever leave? <laughs> you know what? I, I I was living in in New York at the time and. It's interesting in those big cities that, you know, are so populated and you get on the subway and it's super crowded. I find that in that loudness, that's like where, you know, a lot of the solitude also happens, right? Like people tend to, in the big cities, you know, be, be surrounded like, or, or to feel a lot of solitude. Like you're, you're surrounded by, by a lot of people and, you know, a lot of sound, but at the same time, you're, you know, you tend to feel mm -hmm. like, oh, oh my goodness, what's going on? So that, that was also kind of, something that I was personally going through, like living in a big, big city for the first time and feeling, um, you know, asking these questions and wanting to uh, convey them in a piece of music. It's kind of a, a difficult topic and a lot of people are searching for their identity and meaning. And like you said, there's a lot of noise, um, not just in the yeah. cities, but, you know, information. Yes. And yes, yes, yes. a lot of people are going deep uh, and into dark internal places and not everyone can find joy. We were talking in the, you know, chatting in a, while the music was playing about the difficulty some people are finding in composing music that explores joyous feelings. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so much mm -hmm. darkness now. And we talked about this with Richard Daniel Poor a couple of weeks ago about there needing yeah. to be a language of joy in music now. Mm -hmm. What is your feeling? I mean, you are clearly exploring some yeah. very dark feelings and confusing feelings, but you you managed to find joy somehow. As a composer, like I always feel like I'm that soccer player that only gets to play like five minutes in the match. Like they 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 put him in in the last five minutes in the match, and and he needs to score a goal. That's how I feel <laughs> as a composer. Like I've always felt like being a Mexican composer in the U.S. You know. There isn't too many chances to to like uh, chill out or like write music that doesn't doesn't get to the point and isn't you know straightforward connecting with the audience. Like I always feel like you know, and and actually I I also studied with Richard Danielpour, and one of one of the things he you know left me as a student uh, is that sense of like this is kind of like a life or death kind of thing as a composer. Like you either go in a thousand percent or you're not going to have a career as a composer. Like I, I remember he sat us down. In, this was 
during my master's degree at the Manhattan School. And he said, like, look around the room. There's like 10 of you. Only two of you will be composing in the next, you know, in five years or something. And everyone just looked around and was like, what? Like, this is crazy. Like, we're, we're composers. We're in the, you know, we're at a conservatory. We're at a university. Like, this is it. And the, the truth is you have to fight very hard to, to, to deserve a spot on the table, uh, especially because as living composers, we're also competing against the dead ones. You know, like if I want to be in a program with an orchestra, I have to force, you know, convince a conductor that a Contreras piece should be there with a Beethoven, with a Brahms symphony. So it's, it's very competitive and, and I love what I mm-hmm. do and I love the music that I write. But some of that... Uh, strength also comes from knowing that every piece of music I write is, first of all, it's a huge privilege to be a composer, but it's a privilege that you have to kind of earn and keep. No, you, you have to keep going and be very strong. And I think uh, a mistake or something that I see a lot in, in universities, and I, I mean, I've spent nine years in professional universities in the States, is that we are given this idea that as long as you write great music, you're set, no? That, that's kind of the message. You know, composition lessons are basically, you know, move this note and that, that should be a C sharp, not a C. You know, that the craft of composing is such, so precise and it's, it's so intricate mm-hmm. that we tend to just focus on that mm-hmm. and we forget about the fact that we're part of, you know, a classical music world that has certain demands and that, you know, that we, that if we want to be performed, we have to think about the audience, we have to think of, who we're connecting with, who our tribe is. Like there's so much about the composition world that I wish was taught at universities. You know, I, I remember being at university and just thinking like, oh, my music is gonna get played because you know I'm writing good music or, or you know, or or because we get used to the fact that every semester you have two or three concerts that are being organized and we have great players walking down the halls, and you're like, excellent, this is the real world. But then you leave college and you're like, oh my goodness, who's interested in my music? Like, why, why am I composing? You know, and how can I communicate that to people? And I think it's it's a very different world once you start composing uh, for you know orchestras and trying to earn a living making this. So to me, I think that joy and that strength uh, comes from a very deep passion and necessity to keep doing this. Like I know that. The day that I get lazy and start writing stuff just for myself or because I can, I, I, I feel that risk of not no longer being able to, to have a seat at the table. So it sounds very intense, but it's true. It's true. You know, you're a composer from Mexico. You came over to the States. Was that the only driving force for you? Was that the thing that, that kept that fire underneath you, that kept pushing you? Were there other elements as well that were part of that motivation for you? Honestly, at the time when I when I came to the U.S., there weren't many uh, universities and conservatories, especially from where I'm from, Guadalajara, that had like a high caliber school for composition. And one thing that really drew me to the U.S. was the fact that composition is taught in a very one-on-one kind of way, like that since the first day of your undergrad year, you have a composition teacher that you see weekly and that, that to me is like the best way to, to make progress as a composer, to be like constantly working with someone. So that was something that drew me to the country. The fact that, there, that um, you know, young performers were interested in new music. I also love that. And uh, I mean, and part of the fire that you're, you know, there's a, a dichotomy or a duality in a, in a sense. I really love my country, you know, and I kind of, wish that I could live there and make a living writing music. But the truth is that, you know, it's, it's hard to make a living and to anywhere, but in Mexico. So there's that kind of nostalgia, the fact that I, I also love living in the U.S. So, so all of those elements kind of uh, come together when I sit down to write a, a piece of music and I, you know, want to convey what's best about Mexico and to, to kind of share that joy with the whole world because sometimes, you know, people have, only know like kind of the negative aspects about the country. And and I think it's very valuable to be able to contribute something joyful, positive, energetic Mm -hmm. about our traditions. So yeah, all of those things kind of come into play as I'm writing. 
So the last piece we're going to listen to um, are from a work of yours called Pyramida del Sol. The first section we're going to listen to from Pyramida del Sol is Juego de Pelota. Um, mm -hmm. And it's uh, the ritual in which the players strike a ball with their hips to pass it beyond their opponents. You were saying earlier that um, you felt a little bit like a soccer player that has to come in at the last five minutes <laughs> and score the goal. You know, what, what ab about this ritual uh, appealed to you and um, cried out to be set in music? So this is a piano concerto. So I, the first question you ask yourself is, how can I write a piano concerto that hasn't been written or like contribute something new, right? Especially piano concerto that there's a lot of repertoire, a huge tradition. And I always feel like the soloist, you know, uh, shines too much when it comes to concerto writing. Like it's like uh, the tradition is the, the soloist is doing all the cool stuff and the orchestra is just an accompaniment, basically, right? And so what I wanted to do is I came up with this idea uh, that the, the layout of the city of Teotihuacan, which is in Mexico, that used to be like the, the old metropolis in pre-Hispanic Mexico, kind of the New York of the Americas was in what now is Mexico City, but there's this huge pyramid called the Pyramid of the Sun, the Pyramid del Sol, that sits in the middle of the city. And then that pyramid was surrounded by the civilization. So I, I thought, well, when a piano concerto is played, the piano is kind of opened up, you know, the, the cover of the piano is lifted as if the instrument was a pyramid. And then the orchestra is surrounding the piano. So, oh, that's the civilization. So I kind of played with that idea. And then doing some research, I found that this civilization was the first one to practice this brutal ball game where um, the winners, actually, not the losers, the winners, if you won this game, you have the privilege to be sacrificed <laughs> for the gods. So that was, a, that was a prize you got if you won. So I thought, wow, that, that's a cool aspect to kind of explore how the piano as a soloist could have a conversation. So the game is happening and the, the pyramid is kind of cheering the, the, the teams on and commenting on that. And just that switch of, you know, thinking of the piano as a, as a character, as a, uh, something physical like a pyramid, you know, just allowed me to, to discover a new, a new world of sounds that could, you know, be new in a piano concerto. And especially there's a ton of percussion here. I'm using four percussionists with a total of like 60 instruments. So it's a very percussion-driven concerto where the piano also ask, acts as kind of a part of the percussion family. And, and also there's the piano plays pretty much every role I could think of. It's sometimes the soloist where the orchestra is underneath. It's sometimes uh, like in the chamber setting, you know, having like a duet with a viola. It's sometimes uh, covered by the orchestra, so it's part of the fabric. So I wanted to like explore like what are all of the roles that a, a soloist can play when uh, you know being in a concerto setting, rather than the typical like superhero versus you know the accompaniment. So so you'll hear the piano sometimes being covered by the orchestra and sometimes you know shining in in very different settings. So that was kind of the concept behind this this piano concerto. You know we were talking about. Uh, joy in music, you know, and almost humorously, I want to ask you about the sacrifice in this piece. You know, it, it brings it brings a lot of uh, memories back, pieces like uh, The Rite of mm -hmm. Spring by Igor Stravinsky. I, I know that as a composer, you probably want to get into the character mm -hmm. of the piece a little bit. And I would love to understand what was your approach to this and how did you get in the mood to write about a sacrifice, especially when it comes to the last movement of the piece? So part of my uh, mission as a composer, my signature is that I, I, I'm always looking for different aspects about Mexican culture and music to kind of highlight and portray with my compositions. And one aspect uh, that's very important, still very present in Mexico, is the pre-Hispanic past. No, there's a lot of indigenous cultures, indigenous languages still being spoken in Mexico. You could visit this pyramid. The Pyramid of the Sun is, is still in Mexico City. So I treated it with a lot of respect and I wanted to really get into the minds of these uh, like almost warriors that go into this uh, uh, quasi soccer match. Um, so the, the piece is very serious in a way, like the music is very bold and energetic. Uh, the first movement is, is the actual ball game where you feel like the, the ball is being passed back and forth between the players. 
Then the second moment is the offering itself. So it's the ofrenda where we actually hear the sacrifice. So around the middle of the movement, it's the only time in the whole concerto where every single player of the orchestra is playing and making sound. So it's very loud. It's, it's the sacrifice happening. And then it ends in, that movement ends in kind of like a very tender kind of way because for them, it was a huge privilege. It was a huge honor to be sacrificed. That's something they aspired to. And then the last movement is called Danza Emplumada or like a feather dance. And it's more of like a comical celebration of like, okay, this is over. Let's now celebrate that the sacrifice ha has happened and that the game uh, has ended and let's just dance and, and have a good time. So, yeah, that's what we'll hear, the, the last movement. So uh, I have one more question before we go. Yeah. Um, as a successful composer, do you ever feel like the winner of Juego de Pelota? That, you know, what, ha <laughs> I mean, what have you sacrificed for the sake of music and for this love that you have, this passion? Oh, my goodness, that, that hits hard. Well, a lot. Uh, honestly, I mean, just, I mean, family. I mean, the, the fact that I live in the U.S. without my, my immediate family, uh, so many years of, you know, trying to make this happen. And even, like, uh, I can tell you, like, and, and I think this is important for young composers to hear, like, uh, you never feel like you are you have arrived. You never feel like, oh, this is it, This I'm here. Like, you always, um, you know, fighting for the next commission, for the next recording, you know, it's, it's an... I mean, it's a very rewarding career because music is so generous and you'll be able to meet amazing collaborators and people. Like, it, it's worth it, but it's, it's a never-ending journey, you know? We're always looking for new ways to connect, to make music. And, and so, yeah, I, I would suggest that for, for young composers that think like, oh, as soon as I get that award, I'll be, I'll be good and life will be amazing. I can, I can tell you that it's a, uh, you know, everlasting journey where we, we're always searching for more and especially as composers i think the reason why we compose is we want to get it right whatever right means but we want to you know really write music that we feel is amazing and there's that everlasting process of searching for that you know that feeling like oh this piece there's something that that was really done well in this piece and and that search never ends so i'm always every time i write a piece that's the mentality that, that I that I approach it with. Like this has to be the best piece possible, and I think that's what keeps me going. That I feel like I, I need to keep writing in order to keep discovering new things uh, about myself. Mm. Juan Pablo, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, as I said, I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I really applaud the fact that you're allowing voices of you know such diverse composers to 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 speak and to have these very meaningful conversations that need to be you need to happen need to be heard and and i really appreciate that absolutely and uh just to reiterate your music can be heard juan pablo's Contreras new universal music group album mariachi land mm -hmm. was performed by the yalisco philharmonic orchestra that is available on a CD. You can download it on Spotify. You can download it on Amazon and iTunes as well. You have been listening to The Composer Studio. Please visit our website at www.composerstudio.net. Subscribe to our podcast. We're going to listen to the last movement of Juan Pablo's Piano Concerto. This is movement number three. It's Danza Emplumada.
Thank you for listening to The Composer's Studio, available wherever you get your podcasts. And keep listening to the music of today.